Welcome to another edition of Alec Across the States. I'm Dan Reynolds, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about energy and how it relates to state policy. I'm sitting down with Grant Kidwell. He's the Alec Director of the Task Force on the Energy and Environment and Agricultural. Grant, thank you very much for sitting down with us. Glad to be here. And also calling in, we have Jason Isaac, who uh, before his current role was actually a fourth generation, he's currently a fourth generation native Texan, but he was elected four times to be a state representative out in Texas. But right now, he's the senior manager and distinguished fellow of Life Powered, which is an organization based in the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Jason, thank you so much for calling in. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Good to be on with you and Grant. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about um, Life Powered. I actually didn't know about your organization until doing some research for this podcast, and I think our listeners who are mostly state legislators and a lot of people who are interested in state policy would love to learn about that organization. Fantastic. Yeah, we're a few years old. We're a part of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, as you mentioned. Life Powered was branded originally a few years ago as Fueling Freedom and really a response to the Clean Power Plan and to educate people across the United States about how detrimental that would be to our our live you know, our livelihood and the cost of electricity, uh, how much that would increase. And felt like we needed to rebrand about a year and a half ago before I joined. And so changed the name to Life Powered to make the connection about how we benefit from abundant, reliable, safe and clean energy. So really the positive story about our access to energy here in the United States, uh, opportunities to export that freedom that we enjoy around the world, and really pull people out of poverty. And that's what we're seeing more and more as people get access to energy around the world. They actually experience a cleaner environment like we have here in the United States with increased energy usage. We've actually improved the environment, being world leaders. And pulling people out of poverty around the world is a noble cause and something that we can we significantly and need to do and, and tackle. Great. And so you know you mentioned uh, uh, poverty and pulling people out of poverty. Could you kind of explain? You know, we hear the term energy poverty out there. Uh, could you just kind of explain that term to our audience, and then also how how uh, different energy sources lead to pulling people out of energy poverty? Absolutely. I'm sure that people are listening uh, are probably not in energy poverty because they have access to reliable electricity. And that's really what drives energy poverty. And if you are in poverty, the chances are you're in energy poverty too. They, they equal one another. Uh, and you've got over a billion people in the world today that have no access to electricity. Uh, those people also have very limited access to clean, reliable sources of water, which are necessary if you're going to have, or if you have electricity, you're going to have access to clean, reliable water. And so our, our effort is to really educate people and make that connection about people that are in energy poverty that are also in poverty. Uh, you see massive deforestation happen where people are in energy poverty because they cut down trees to use that to cook and heat their homes. Uh, more people die every single year because of death due to cold than they do due to heat. And it's a significant difference in the two. And that's why you have bad policies around other countries around the world where you have massive deforestation and people using wood, branches, animal dung, things of that nature to cook and heat their homes. But if you get them access to clean, affordable, reliable electricity, they actually improve their quality of lives significantly. The World Health Organization estimates that 3.8 million people die a year 
from lung illness related to indoor air pollution. And that's because they are cooking with biomass in their homes. And just kind of on that point, Jason, I know in the U.S. we were actually seeing uh, in many places uh, reforestation. There's actually more forest in the U.S. acres-wise than there were 100 years ago. I think we're seeing that in a lot of developing uh, or more developed countries where once countries reach a point economically, they start to go back and reforest. Uh, you see increasing forest as countries grow economically. So the poorest countries, you know, deforestation is huge, as you mentioned. In the U.S. and other developed countries, we start to see kind of uh, forest uh, lands grow again. Yeah, when people quit using trees to heat their homes and cook their food with, when they have access to other forms of electricity, whether it's natural gas or propane or, or just electricity that's generated from natural gas or propane or coal or other sources, that they tend to move away from burning wood inside their homes. And then they tend to use that wood in forestry practices. I mentioned to someone from the UK last week that we should be using wood to build affordable housing, not to be used to generate heat and electricity. I think I surprised this person that was interviewing me from Channel 4 News in the UK when I told him that the number one renewable source of electricity in the EU is wood. And it's wood pellets shipped from the southeastern United States into Europe, into the UK. There's actually a electric generation facility in London that burns wood to produce electricity. Uh, it's not the most environmentally friendliest, but in EU's terms, it's considered renewable in statute, and so they burn it to meet their renewable mandates. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, we mentioned earlier, Jason, that you were a state legislator in Texas, and uh, also what I think our listeners would be very interested to learn is that you were a member of ALEC while you were a state legislator. Yeah, um, I, still, yeah I was a legislative member of ALEC and now a, a proud alumni member of Alec. Yeah, awesome. Lo love to have you uh, a part of the team still. And to that end, as a state legislator and even as a member of Alec, what lessons did you learn in those two arenas that you take with you now for Life Powered? Well, as someone who believes in free markets and, and free enterprise markets, that, that Alec was a great avenue to to share successes that we had had in the Texas legislature, but to also learn about opportunities that other states were working on. So for me, it was really about the networking and visiting with like-minded legislators from around the country to what policies were good and, and then really what policies to watch out for uh, that were creeping in in other states, because you've always got to be mindful of those, such as the Paris Climate Accord and Green New Deals and uh, things of that nature that are now creeping in at actually municipalities throughout the country are adopting the Paris Climate Accord. So for me, as a member of ALEC, that was the, the best thing for me, was to network with members of the legislatures of other states and to really look for the good and the bad coming out of those other states. Sure. And, you know, you, you bring up a couple of different things there. And with the uh, Paris Climate uh, Accords, obviously, we saw uh, just this week, Secretary of State Pompeo was announcing that the uh, U.S. would leave the Paris Climate Agreement. Could you just kind of weigh in on um, what's your thoughts on the original agreement and also uh, the Trump administration's campaign promises to pull out and now um, them actually leaving the agreement uh, as of this week? Yeah, it was great. When the president was elected, he made a comment along the lines that he represents the people of Pittsburgh, not of Paris. <laughs> uh, you actually saw some liberal mayors around the country, especially the one of Pittsburgh, say, you know what, we're going to stay into the Paris Climate Accord. When you look at, and the Paris Climate Accord really focuses on carbon emissions, 
So when they're sitting around drinking their sparkling waters, they're telling us that we shouldn't have carbon in our lives, though it is the building block of life. Uh, it's 0.04% of our entire atmosphere. It is plant food. We've got polling that shows that people don't understand photosynthesis and how carbon dioxide is a pretty important part of that. Uh, but the world, the United States has been a world leader in reducing the criteria pollutants that are actually known to cause harm. The six criteria pollutants classified by the EPA have reduced 74% since 1970. We have the strictest air quality standards by the World Health Organization in the world, and we're the only country that meets those standards. We shouldn't be signing on to Paris Climate Accords that force us to increase our cost of electricity. And there are studies that show that Paris Agreement emissions are upheld. More than 3 million people would be pushed into poverty. That's on top of the 1 billion people I referenced earlier who still don't have access to electricity. So it's actually increasing poverty and increasing energy poverty. Mm -hmm. It's completely backwards. You look from between 2008 to 2018, if you really are concerned with carbon dioxide emissions, I personally am not. Uh, we, we've reduced those 9% while the rest of the world has increased them 17%. China and India continue to be the biggest polluters uh, in the world, not only polluting our air, but polluting our rivers with, with plastic waste. More than 80% of the plastic waste in the oceans today comes from eight rivers in China. It's just appalling that they were given asterisks. As long as they could manipulate to show their economies were growing, they didn't have to meet the terms of the Paris Climate Accord. Mm -hmm. But it was a direct attack on the prosperity that we have here in the United States and how other countries just cannot handle it. Uh, and so they're trying to attack us from every single angle. And so I applaud the president. He and Secretary Pompeo yesterday, it's on November 4th, was the day that they could do it signaled their intention or, or sent the letter to the United Nations so that next November 4th, 2020, a day after a, a, a pretty important election, we will no longer be in the Paris Accord. And I think that is a great thing for Americans. Again, we're a world leader when it comes to clean air. We're number one when it comes to access to clean and safe drinking water. The rest of the world should be following what we do. And that's why I think the president and the administration should have a Pittsburgh Accord <laughs> to, to get countries, <laughs> our trading partners around the world, to meet our air quality standards uh, before they tell us what to do with our environment. Because, again, we're a world leader. People that wake up in the United States should be lucky to wake up in the United States because we do have access to clean air and clean water. Yeah, I think that's a really good message. Uh, speaking a little bit more to costs and, you know, the Paris climate deal is something very newsworthy. People are uh, understand it. Another one is the Green New Deal, right? So what would something like the Green New Deal, what would it mean for states? What would it mean in particular for Texas, from your example? Um, what sort of costs would be associated with that? Great question. We've got some research on our website, lifepower.org, that we've recently conducted or concluded here within the last couple of months that shows that the average family in Texas spends about $1,400 annually on their electricity. If the Green New Deal were to be passed and implemented in Texas, that cost would increase over $3,000, pushing their electricity bills near $5,000 per year. The cost in infrastructure alone would be $120 billion a year. That's about the annual budget of the state of Texas right now. And for really no environmental benefit, this is what we've, there's over 400 cities who have signed on to the Paris Climate Accord. You've got 24 states that have passed carbon-free electricity requirements. 
if the entire United States were to go carbon-free electricity, as called for in the Green New Deal, by 2030, the temperature difference in the United States using the oft-flawed UN IPCC models that they use would be reduced by 0.017 degrees Celsius. Mm. 0.017 degrees Celsius. Now, if we went completely, completely off of fossil fuels 100% by 2030, that temperature reduction by 2050 would be 0.054 degrees Celsius. I mean, we're talking absolutely nothing for a massive increase in cost, not to mention the incredible amounts of land that would be needed for generation. If you want to go wind and solar, keep in mind you're not building a single solar panel or windmill without fossil fuels. Just think about the ingredients that go in manufacturing those, which a lot of people don't think. I mean, you've got people running for president right now that want to ban fossil fuels and then go 100% renewable. You wouldn't be able to lubricate windmills if you ban fossil fuels. People are like, oh, wait, there's lube in windmills? I had no idea. Well, it does spin around in a circle, so that would be helpful. (laughs) (laughs) It really kind of is a necessary component of wind generation. But in Texas alone, you'd need 5 million acres of land just for the generation for wind, solar, and battery storage, and another 1.2 million acres of land for transmission lines that would be scattered all over the state of Texas, uh, which, which produces and uses about 10 to 11% of the electricity in the United States. So just imagine what this would do to other states. You'd have windmills everywhere. It would look hideous. Uh, You would no longer have endangered birds uh, because they just wouldn't exist anymore because windmills actually get credit for killing endangered species. And Jason, they are from killing endangered birds. Mm. And Jason, just to kind of jump in on these points here, I think it's important to talk about kind of what the Green New Deal and similar policies have left out. So you look across the states, since, you know, Alec, we're a state-based focus institution, a lot of times you see renewable portfolio standards, which are mandates for electricity uh, to come from renewable sources. And if it's truly about carbon emissions, oftentimes these mandates don't include nuclear. They don't include hydropower. Uh, they, they sometimes include geothermal. And I think we also see in the Green New Deal, there wasn't much talk about nuclear power. There wasn't much talk about hydropower. Uh, there was very little talk about natural gas, which again, if you want to talk about reducing emissions, I think the abundance of affordable natural gas has done a lot to reduce carbon emissions just because it's a, a cheaper source and we're using more of it. And so just kind of get your perspective. Uh, why do you think uh, these sources like nuclear, like hydro, were left out? Is it, is it truly about carbon emissions uh, or is it about something else? No, it's definitely not about carbon emissions. If it were, then you're right. Nuclear would be the huge portfolio uh, that would be being pushed. But it's about controlling every aspect of our lives, increasing cost uh, and, and really just control is the big term. It's it's about controlling how we live our lives, just telling us where we can work, what kind of cars we can drive, and how much electricity we can use. Uh, and it's going to price people significantly out of electricity, which we're already seeing in cities like Georgetown, Texas, that pledged, although they didn't pledge, their, their logo for their utility service as 100% with windmills and solar panels. Uh, it's quite hysterical. But they've gone 100% renewable and in three years, they're over $30 million in debt for a city of 75,000 people. Their electricity rates are 62% higher than they are in a very similar size city, 60 miles to the south. 
They've had two rate increases this year, and they're pricing the least among us out of electricity. And people, we're seeing it in Europe, people are having to choose between heating their homes or eating in the winters because of some of these same renewable and environmentalist alarmist policies that are put in place in Europe, and they were failed policies now are being put in place in the United States through the Renewable Portfolio Standard that you mentioned and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative uh, that states need to be very aware of. Our electric providers should strive to deliver the most affordable, reliable electricity they can in using the sources available. But they're not. They're getting on environmental missions that are really detrimental to the consumers that they serve. And kind of, you know, talking about, you know, renewable sources or, or so-called renewable sources like wind and solar, it's not that, you know, free market groups are necessarily opposed to them. It's more about, you know, what are the conditions for where we're having these uh, these sources of energy? So could you talk a little bit, you know, Texas obviously has significant amounts of wind power uh, and I believe solar too. So could you talk about what, you know, were there free market policies that Texas has to promote wind and solar to the extent they have it? Obviously, we don't want to pick winners and losers or, or favor energy source, but to what extent does Texas have policies to promote uh, use of uh, wind and solar when they work? Yeah, we do. And we are the Texas is the largest producer of wind generated electricity in the country. And it's because we have significant subsidies. We have polling that shows consistently that families do not want to pay anything extra on their electric bills. They're concerned about the changing climate. But by and large, they don't want to pay anything extra to deal with it because they really just can't bear those costs. Well, Texas families would be surprised to know that they're already paying over $200 per year per family in tax exemptions for wind and solar here in the state. And what that does is they come in and they find a piece of land and they get exempt from either local taxes the city, municipalities, emergency services, districts, and they get exempt from property taxes that fund our schools, fund about just under 50% of the public education bill in the state of Texas, which when you start taking land off the tax rolls, that increases it to those that are actually paying people like me that don't have uh, you know, wind farms on my property uh, that I own. I'm, I'm, it increases my burden. And it's interesting to note that wind and solar receive 94 times the federal subsidies than nuclear per terawatt hour of generation. Hmm. 94 times the amount of federal subsidies, which for nuclear, that's really just tax write-offs for business expenses. But it's just massive how much subsidized, how subsidized they are. Sure, in a free market, absolutely have no issues with people or companies promoting their businesses, but it's heavily subsidized. And I'm not convinced that it would survive without the subsidies. That's why you see uh, wind going back and asking for the federal investment tax credit and why they fought tooth and nail last year in Texas for the local little cities, uh, municipalities, their tax exemptions, and why next year they'll fight tooth and nail to save their property tax exemptions from school taxes as well. Well, I think that does bring us to the end of our segment today. I've been sitting down with Grant Kidwell, the ALEC Director of the Energy, Environment, and Agriculture Task Force here at ALEC. Thanks so much for making some time and sitting down with me, Grant. Glad to be here. And also calling in, we have Jason Isaac, who is the Senior Manager over at Life Powered, an awesome initiative, a part of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, We're going to be linking to that website in our show notes 
So listeners, if you're interested in learning more, you can go ahead and check that out and learn from there. Um, Jason, thank you so much for calling in and making some time today. Dan, Grant, great to be with you all. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you would like to be featured on the Across the States podcast, please go ahead and email across the states at alec.org and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Alec States. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.